Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Good evening, ladies and gents. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. I'm your host tonight, Tristan Johnson, co-hosted with the good old M. Bridgewater. Thank you, Tristan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Inside joke. Her name's actually Emma. So, um, we are on Earth, as far as I know, and we can learn a lot about this planet, about how we're made of stones and rocks and and all sorts of fun stuff below the surface. This is getting really good. Um, But we're here today to learn about what we can learn about Mars while on Earth, and also what we can use, do with fun uh, remote control thing. So here tonight we're going to talk to planetary geologist Christy Cottle. Welcome aboard. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So was that accurate? Was uh, Should we start with what is um, what's planetary geology? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a planetary geologist, which means that I study rocks here on Earth uh, and Think about what can that tell us about other planetary bodies? Uh, the composition of the crust, uh, what is the surface made out of, and how was it formed? So what are the past processes? And I can tell you about past environments of those planets. Excellent. And you're specifically trying to see about what on Earth can teach us about Mars. Yeah, so Mars is my focus. I may be a little obsessed with Mars. Uh, so we do a little bit of work Uh, It's called um, comparative planetology. Uh, So I study, specifically I study, impact craters here on Earth. So those are features formed by asteroid impacts onto a planet from these craters. Um, And they're really significant from a planetary standpoint because it's the only process that's common throughout the solar system on all rocky planets. So it's really easy to compare the geology of impact craters uh, from Earth to another planet, and it can teach us a lot about what, what's going on on the other planet. And my focus particularly is on Mars. Uh, Mars is very sexy right now, right? Uh, lots of people are very interested in Mars and even going to Mars, and some very real plans to make human exploration real on the planet. So it's, uh, it's a great place to study. So to go to real the real basics, uh, why we choose Mars? Why is it the the object of our eyes right now? Well, it's uh, the most accessible, right? It's quite close and was probably the most Earth-like in its early past. So it's very intriguing for us because it does have those environments on the surface we've been able to identify, and we even have rovers currently investigating, which have water features from the past, particularly Curiosity, is investigating a lacustrine or an ancient lake deposit. And because it was so much like Earth early in its past, um, it has these great uh, environments, you know, where there's where there's water, there's life, right? So we mm-hmm. see these features that were created by water. And we, the hope is that we go there and collect samples and analyze them and finally answer the question, are we alone? You know, there is there life. Is there other life out there? And that's a very accessible point for us to get to that right now. Um, and this makes it a really exciting, interesting place to study. 
So the question was, it used to be at least blue, but was it blue and green? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. So what is it about... Uh, what is it about impact craters? So like, what can you uh, learn from an impact crater about the geology of Earth or Mars? Mm -hmm. Or, as you said, all over the place? Yeah, so impact craters are a great field of study because they can tell you a lot about the subsurface of a planetary body. So uh, particularly really large impact structures can go deep into the crust, into the subsurface, and so when an impact hits the surface, um, it excavates material, and that material lands on the outside of the crater. It's called ejecta. And that ejecta is essentially the deposits that were underground. So in a planet, on a planet like Mars, without plate tectonics, these are really important processes to expose the subsurface and give us a window into what's going on below what we can actually see. So that are some other really cool things about impact craters, too, about their study. Um, particularly when we're talking about the focus on habitability, ancient habitability, and the search for life. Um, impact craters, as you can imagine, often act as um, fluvial catchment basins. So that means that if there's any available water, it's going to make a lake in the impact crater. Uh, and again, that's exactly what Curiosity is doing in Gale Crater. There were ancient lake deposits um, because it kind of acted as this basin. Uh, another really cool thing about impact craters um, on Earth, Mars, and all bodies is that if there's sufficient water subsurface, and clearly early on Mars that there, there was, um, naturally hydrothermal systems will be created by impact events. So this is any water subsurface will be superheated, and the ground is highly fractured by impact cratering, and that water that superheated water subsurface will now percolate through those fractures and concentrate um, minerals and elements and things that life loves and will grow on. So not only do you have the potential for um, fluvial and lake deposits, but you also have the potential for past hydrothermal um, vents and other activity that could house ancient life. That's quite a mouthful. So not only uh, not only do we learn the the classical thing that if you want to see the inside of something, throwing a rock at it really hard mm -hmm. is a pretty good way oh, to yeah. do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, you said you can get hints, uh, but um, just the heat from the impact will heat the water, let the water come out, and that will also bring out some of the trace minerals that are around it. And That's exactly right. Yeah, a big enough impact can create and sustain its own hydrothermal system for hundreds of thousands of years. Um and lots of economic deposits on Earth are found in, in impact craters for that reason. They're an excellent concentrator of minerals and, and metals. So then would it be a good place, say, if we were, you know, going to put Brad Pitt somewhere, uh, that'd be a good place to, you know, dig up some useful material for building things? Uh, on Mars? Uh, potentially. So so certainly a lot of potential for for. For metals there, um, but of course we have a long way to go to figure out how to manufacture things on the surface of another planet. There is some ongoing work to figure out how to make things like Martian concrete just out of the materials that are available on the surface. So that stuff is it's definitely pretty preliminary, but it's it's very promising, you know, for the habitability or for the future human exploration inside Mars. 
So I'm curious, how exactly do you go about uh, studying these these craters? Because I mean, like with a lot of science research, we can sit in our little labs and do work for hours and hours. But how do you how do you study something like a, a crater on Earth and compare it to a crater on Mars, for example? Yeah, so that's um, half of the fun part of being a planetary geologist is the geologist part. So I actually get to go and do field work, do lots of um, lots of field work. So my main site for my main field site for impact cratering is the Reese impact structure in Germany. And it's arguably the best preserved, best studied impact crater on the planet. And the ejected deposits I was talking about earlier uh, has probably the best preserved ejected deposits. And it's really important for Mars because um, it's ancient terrains which preserve all the fluvial features I was talking about earlier when it was kind of warm, wet, more like Earth. That's also the part of Mars that's very heavily cratered. So understanding that process is very important to understanding that whole period of Mars and where all those materials on the surface came from. So what I do at the Reese Impact Structure in Germany is I look at these particular deposits that we think we see also on Mars. And so we physically go there. As a geologist, you have to go where the rocks are, thankfully. Uh, And then you take samples, and you bring those samples back to the lab uh, and crush them and do laboratory experiments on those to decide exactly what the composition of those rocks are, and that tells you about the formation history of those rocks. Um, so what we're doing that's sort of uh, sort of novel is that we're taking some instrumentation to the field that's, um, that maps spectrally the outcrop. So what that means is that we are able to look at the mineralogy uh, right there in the field with this amazing instrument that can tell you right away, you map it with the spectrometer and it gives you um, spectral data that you can make into an image. It's basically a mineral map at the outcrop scale. And why this is really cool is because not only do you get that information uh, right when you're there before you've transported the rocks, lost any material or um, done anything in in the lab to process it, you have a data set that now you can compare to spectrometers that are orbitally um, that are orbitally derived. So your data for Mars, uh, that kind of spectral data comes from orbiters, instruments that are aboard aboard, aboard um, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, for example. So you have these kinds of spectral data sets for Mars, and then we, now we have spectral data sets for an analogous environment in Germany, and we can compare those two. Do, do a more, an easier one-to-one comparison of the types of mineralogy. How are these things developed, particularly if you're talking about hydrothermal environments? And, you know, are, were these things supportive of life in the past? And um, so you can kind of compare those things. So, oh wait, I, okay, I just got, you basically brought a tricorder with you for something? Yeah, like. so that's right, that's You right. can literally just put... <laughs> minerals in this thing and it'll give you a uh, basically telling you what's in it on the field yeah so these are the kind of cutting things about geology field geology right now we have all the traditional tools you know our hand lens and our hammer and uh our brunt compass uh but we also have these new awesome tools that are um handheld um spectrometers that were traditionally only in the lab, right? Because they're hugely expensive and very bulky and, and only really probably for lab. Um, so 
because of space exploration technologies, everything has become more miniaturized, particularly when you're thinking about putting something like that on a rover. So now these new technologies have been developed where you can take what you used to only use in the lab and take that in the field uh, and be able to get this amazing spectral data set. Um, some instruments, some spectrometers can give you geochemistry. Uh, in 60 seconds, it looks very much like a phaser from Star Trek. You just put the nozzle against the rock. 60 seconds later, you have a, a near complete geochemical reading of the rock and uh, compile a huge database quickly. And the um, imaging spectrometers that we were using do more of a map, um, like a mineralogy map. So please say that there's either a rover on Mars or one going to Mars equipped with one of these things. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they, they all have spectrometers. And we're talking about um, the search for ancient life. Uh, some really, really interesting instruments uh, on Mars 2020. They, they have an instrument called Sherlock. And this is a, a Raman spectrometer. And it's capable of um, detecting not particularly biosignatures, but um, pigments that were indicative of ancient biosignatures. So basically, if we see these with that rover, we're going to be able to detect them before we even grab the sample and cache it for later return. That's the hope. So like kind of like uh, signs that they that something might have been living here. And exactly. So uh, when you're discussing the, these hydrothermal events with uh, with impact craters, does that mean that not only are you exploring that, like, did Mars potentially have a suitable um, habitat for life, but that there could be ecosystems even now that are still, like, living off this heat? Or mm -hmm. would that be sure. a bit too optimistic? Um, you know, with the, with the recent findings about how much water ice exists subsurface on Mars currently, I don't, it doesn't seem to me to be out of the realm of possibility, particularly if you um, have some remnant heat, maybe from volcanism, that's that's still active. I think those active processes are probably largely dead. And the very large impact events that I was talking about earlier happened very early in its history. So that's unlikely. Um, and we're searching for, uh, but maybe not outside the realm of possibility, mm -hmm. we're searching for signatures for life. Um, the thing is that the rocks that contain those biosignatures shouldn't probably be exposed to the surface because it's highly oxidative. Um, it's subject to long-term cosmic radiation. So maybe a matter of meters from the surface, anything is going to, any type of biosignatures either uh, probably is going to be destroyed. Um, and that's a challenge with curiosity because um, the drill can only penetrate something like 10 centimeters into the rock uh, to look for these particular biosignatures. So even if it gets the right rock that could have preserved those biosignatures, it may have been decayed at this point because of cosmic radiation. Um, so ExoMars, the European-led rover mission, um, that's now scheduled for launch in 2020, they've gotten around this because their drill is able to penetrate two meters uh, into the subsurface into rock to get samples for cash. So um, I think so feeling pretty optimistic about um, at least the preservation of those biosignatures, whether or not um, there's anything actively going on. I mean, maybe that's really up for debate. 
So would there be any significant differences if something was uh, like answering the question, did was Mars alive versus is it alive now? Because it could be that, you know, now it's sterile. Mm-hmm. So is there yeah. any chance that like you could still find like fossils and things like that? Oh, I'm certainly. Not... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's, I mean, it, it depends on the extent of how life flourished. I mean, I'm no astrobiologist. Uh, I sort of look at it from more of a geologist perspective in which, which rocks do we look for that have the highest potential of, of finding these, uh, these biosignatures. Um, and for a planet like Mars and its evolution, I think that's, um, that's the most likely thing for us. Uh, but hey, you know, if we imaged um, a micro fossil at some point, <laughs> that would that would kind of be gold, right? So it seems like Mars is, you know, pretty inhospitable nowadays. So if if we did see these things, like we're seeing li- like ancient lakes and that sort of thing, so what what happened to the planet? I don't know if this is something that you can speak to, but it's uh, it's just got me curious. Yeah. So um, that's that's not really my realm, and I think that's largely an unanswered question at this point. I mean, clearly, early in its past, um, it had uh, a magnetic field, it had atmosphere. That is quite clear because of the stability of water that was on the surface early in its history. So, and it's and, and they're huge features. I mean, this is kind of long-lived system where we have uh, rivers, we have deltaic deposits. Um, Think of the Mississippi Delta. Um, I mean, potentially there was an ocean on uh, on one part of Mars. So, you know, there there were these long-lived systems, and so so certainly it had to have an atmosphere to support that. Um, At some point, it did lose it's most of its atmosphere it does have some atmosphere now mostly mostly co2 um and it has just a remnant magnetic field um and likely whatever mechanism caused uh that magnetic field to to decrease um also caused the loss of its atmosphere and uh its potential for for liquid water stability mm-hmm. so you've also written a little bit about Utah. And I know that they've done some, like, you know, mock Mars missions in Utah. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Utah? Yes. What does Utah have to do with Mars? <laughs> yeah. So um, I was saying that impact craters can serve as a nice analogy for impact craters on Mars. There are other environments on Earth that are analogous to environments on Mars. And one of the world class research sites for Mars studies is in Utah. Um, It's near the Mars Desert Research Station, so that's where we work near Hanksville, Utah. Um, And it's a fluvial lacustrine environment, so so that means that it um, had a succession of lake deposits with intermittent streams in its path. And the work that we did there uh, was a mission ran by the CSA. They governed the, the mission, and it was carried out here at Western um, from with grad students all over the country. And we also had heavy participation by um, people on uh, MSL teams and the upcoming Mars 2020 teams from, uh, from NASA. Uh, and we also had some folks from the UK Space Agency and the German Space Agency here with us during that mission. So it was kind of an international effort. 
And what we were doing was a mock rover mission. It was essentially a, a mock Mars 2020 mission. We used Utah as our analogous field site. And CSA flew their rover down to Utah and deployed it. Meanwhile, back here at Western, we're doing remote operations, which is mission control. And we were left in the dark about where the rover actually was on planet Earth. To us, it was on planet Mars. So we went through this very realistic, uh, and the reason why we had so much international cooperation is because um, we all wanted to really ensure that it was a very closely simulated mission and that it was as real as possible to what's going to happen on Mars 2020. We had hand-picked spectrometers and imagers and all of the instrument suites that will be on board Mars 2020. Um, the idea was that you go into this blind field site with only what you'd have starting a real mission on Mars, which is uh, orbitally derived data, imagery, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then you would decide, okay, if we're looking, if we have the same mission goals that real rover missions do, particularly Mars 2020 and ExoMars, in biopreservation and past habitability, how do, we, how do we make those assessments through the eyes of a rover and the little bit of orbital imagery that we have? How do we do that? How do we best find the traverses with the rover? Um, how do we physically get the samples with the rover and catch them and then make the best decisions about, you have to make those really hard decisions about which ones will be returned to Earth? How do you do that? Um, so we carried out this entire mission where we would send commands to the rover every day. It was very hectic, much like a real mission. It was a grueling schedule. Um, and every day we get data returned from the rover. The scientists we have a, a team of uh, 30 or so uh, science team members um, crack out the data and um, have a huge science discussion. What does that data tell us? What's going on in this environment? How do we plan for the next day? Make a plan, implement it every day. So, um, the really important thing about doing these sorts of missions is, one, you can sort operational procedures for these types of missions that you can't do when you're actually doing them and on, you know, NASA's dime and time. Um, and the other real advantage is that you get to physically go to the site that you were looking at and validate how you did. So afterwards, we all went down to Utah um, and we're surprised about how much we got right um, and how much we missed. So these are really important studies to say when, we're, when we have a rover mission on Mars, really how good can a rover geologist on its own be in doing these kinds of missions and meeting the full mission goals? Um, so it was pretty exciting for us to be able to have these operations here at Western and influence how um, future Mars missions are going to be ran. So that's that's kind of what we did in Utah. And uh, how did it go? It went really well. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Um, man, it was grueling being in it when we were doing it, but the experience was um, unlike any other. Uh, and I think that the results, uh, which we, you know, are still sort of sorting through at this point and still sort of writing about it and um, getting useful documents uh, for people moving forward. Um, but we're just, we're so excited about um, the things that we learned really the hard way. Um, 
that hopefully rural missions won't won't have to learn those lessons. And so, uh, what's next? <laughs> oh, it's a great question. Um, so hopefully we'll be doing more analog missions in cooperation with the CSA. So this was a really special um, a special mission and a special time because a lot of this work was supported by the Insert Create grant um, from the CSA. Uh, and this was a really important grant to get these sorts of studies off the ground and particularly um, student involvement in these missions and training the really the workforce, the next space sciences workforce for Canada. Um, that funding has now come to an end. So we're now sort of trying to figure out how, how are we going to move these things forward? How are we going to continue to get funding um, to make sure that Canada has a real say in what happens in future missions and how do we keep training people to be ready to work on those missions. So that's kind of an unknown as far as um, those sorts of uh, analogous missions go, but we're very much looking for more grants to continue it. All right, so uh, if the opportunity came up, would you go? Oh, of course I would go. (laughs) (laughs) In a heartbeat, send me, I'll go. Excellent. and. If somebody wanted to keep up to date with what's going on with all of this, is there an online presence that you or your lab have that they can follow along? Yeah, certainly. So if you want to learn anything about what we did in CanMars, um, the Twitter hashtag CanMars, that was the analog mission that I was talking about in Utah. So um, you can look at that. All of us from CPSX, I'm from the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration here at Western. Um, you can use that uh, hashtag too, CPSX. Uh, and we also have a, a website, so you can just look for Western CPSX and find out all the really, really cool research that the geologists, planetary science, and other people under that space exploration umbrella are doing here at Western. All right. And I guess one day you'll have a, you'll have a canyon named after you over there or something. <laughs> a crater. A crater. A crater, yeah. <laughs> so to thank you so much for coming on. My I pleasure. really appreciate it. This has been a really great show. So... GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students. As I mentioned, if you just listened to this episode and it blew your mind, tell us about it. Email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. But also, if you're a grad student yourself and your research can blow our mind, even if it doesn't, you know, just come in. Uh, We want to hear from all of you. (laughs) Send us an email, gradcastradio at gmail.com. We're always excited to have uh, Western's best and brightest come on and talk about the amazing work that happens just under our noses, somewhere in an office on this campus, they were doing an analog Mars mission. So come on in. Let's hear about everything crazy that's going on. And uh, have a nice week. And stay vertical. It's really slippery out there. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through GradCast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.